Okay, so I want to encourage you. So a couple weeks ago, I finished off a three-part series just on, uh, on a, a very brief section. Actually, <laughs> I, I did a three-week series on the first warning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And then verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That was actually the title of the series. So uh, Pastor Roman asked me to, you know, to say some things about this. So I took three Sundays. And uh, if you haven't seen the videos, they're up on the YouTube channel. I want to encourage you to go see them because it really drives home uh, their, the, the, the warning of that. Because what I did was in, in a fair amount of detail, uh, I went and looked at all of the things that uh, that that uh, Israel that that uh, uh, yeah take one of those that God providentially put Israel through and is continuing to put them through, uh, setting them aside so that we might have access to this faith and to this grace in which we stand. And so there's. A tremendous price that was paid and there's going to be a tremendous um, consequence uh, to those of us who neglect and who let slide this this salvation that we've been given it's something that we need to keep pushing forward on and make no mistake about it that that it's not we're, we're not moving forward with no resistance we're moving forward we're under constant bombardment and constant resistance to to get us to to get off track to get distracted and to stop moving forward so so that's you know so this is important for us but as you'll remember the epistle of the hebrews was written to hellenistic jews who were living in the diaspora and they had become hellenized and they were more open to the ideas that were prevalent in Hellenistic society and then some of them struggled with the concept of Jesus Christ as a man uh, his revelation and authority his revelation and uh, his teaching having more authority than that of than that of Moses uh, one of the things that I was going over with my omnibus students this week was we were looking <coughs> we're looking at some of the the heresies that began to sweep across the church early on in the church. And one of them was particular to, uh, was particular to, to Jews in, of that time in the Hellenistic world, and that was called the Ebionite heresy. So the Ebionites believed that Jesus was a man and more than a man, but that he was not God. And so, um, and so, uh, so there was that. Yeah, there were different types that you know your the students can tell you about if you like. Um, so it's important. It was important for the author of Hebrews. Nobody knows who he, who he was. God knows that's good enough. Um, so he takes them through. He begins right off the bat in Hebrews chapter one, establishing the divinity of Christ. Now. Um, Part of what I talked about in that three-part series was they were, uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, just to, just to recap this. 
we can see how they got thrown off. This is a little bit of review about what I said in one of the one of the sessions in Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 9. Actually, verse 12, that's the you know the event called a triumphal em, en, uh, entry. The next day, a great great multitude had that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And so there's a parallel reading in the Gospel of Matthew where he's called the Son of David. Those two terms were absolutely understood as referring to the Messiah. And so they were proclaiming Jesus. They had recognized him as the Messiah. But they get confused later on by something that Jesus says. And if you, if you drop down um, to verse 32, same chapter, Jesus now proclaims this to the, to the crowd. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said signifying by what death he would die. And so they understood by that phrase that Jesus was predicting that he would be crucified. This is what threw them off. Because look at how they respond in verse 34. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so in their understanding of the Messianic, the Messianic office, that once the Messiah came, he would establish the Davidic kingdom forever. There is nothing in there. And so... And so this is what threw them off. This is what ultimately led to their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah because they had not been taught the complete revelation of Scripture concerning the Messiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 53, right? So Isaiah chapter 53 is, is that chapter that deals with the suffering of the Messiah. But the way that they were taught that passage and the way they still understand it to this day is that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is a representation of the whole nation of Israel, not just the Messiah. So that they had an incomplete understanding. That's why in Hebrews chapter 1, the author goes right into establishing from the Old Testament, from the, from the texts that are quoted there in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament clearly signified that the Messiah would be both human and divine. And so he moves from that uh, on to after issuing the first warning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, uh, then he starts talking about the, um, his status and his authority in reference to Moses. To this day, Moses is their top prophet. Everything is, is, is you never disparage Moses today. And you'll, you'll read some of the wildest things in some of the, in Jewish commentaries on trying to excuse some of those events that, w that are recorded in the scripture concerning the life of Moses um, to try and, and, and remove any sort of stain from his character, okay? So he moves on from that, and, and then he says, you know what? Yeah, Moses was a faithful servant in the house, but the one who built the house, the one who owns the house, has more authority 
and and uh, and uh, and holds a higher position than the one who is servant of the house. He is the one who built the house, and he is the one who sustains the house, and he is the one who owns the house. Therefore, he's even higher than Moses. And then that brought us to the second warning in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, where we read, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So these words, mind you, are not spoken to, to, uh, to unbelievers. Now let me ask you this question. And this is an interesting, this is an interesting one. Does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? Does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? He does not. He does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. He only hears the prayers of believers. Right? So, and I will, it's, it escapes me, but I will prove that from Scripture. There is a clear passage which says that God does not hear the prayers of, of sinners and unbelievers. So these words, everything that's in this book is spoken to you as a believer. There's nothing in here for an unbeliever. Right? So what is the basic message that, that you, uh, and we're going to get into, you know, as we shift tonight, the... The first few verses of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 4 actually represent a transition now where we transition from Moses into the priesthood. And we're going to be discussing the priesthood for the next few sessions. Well, it says in 1 Peter 2.9 that you are a royal priesthood, a, a chosen generation, right? And so these words, you as priest, uh, you, are, you are commissioned and you are sent out to do what? to share the gospel with people, to preach the gospel to people. That is the avenue through which God reaches out to unbelievers, is through you, if his spirit has determined that he's going to take that person and make them spiritually alive. Because you might as well be reading green eggs and ham to them if they've not been made alive by the Holy Spirit first. It's the Holy Spirit that, that makes a person spiritually takes them out of their spiritual death state, imparts spiritual life to them, and then God sends a messenger with a gospel, and they hear the gospel, and they understand the gospel, and they see their need for salvation. But none of that happens without, without the, the quickening work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so these words are spoken to believers, and so when, again, we read in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. God's word would not specify and say that warning were it not possible for that to happen to a believer. In departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sins. And so... And so if you, if you go on and drop down to verse 15, it says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so that is, again, a quote out of, um, out of the Old Testament. It's actually out of Psalm 68. 
that's a quote. And so that is being lifted out of there and being delivered to, to the Hebrew Christians who were the recipients of this letter and by extension to us that this is something that we need to be on guard for that we are not uh, we are not in on track on the trajectory of departing from the living God and that takes place through the deceitfulness of sin see that's the deceptive power of sin it's sort of a it's sort of a mind-altering substance you get going on a path of sin and you don't realize that 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 sin is actually it has initiated a departure from the living God and so that those that quotation out of Psalm 68 is 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 speaking to them and speaking to anyone who might come under the realization yeah you know what that's me I'm I'm on this road. I've begun the departure from the living God. And I think, I think we can all recognize seasons of that in our lives, right? How many of you remember when you first got saved? The joy and the passion. And just, man, I just, you can't, couldn't wait to share God's word with people, right? And to read God's word. But over the course of time, what happens? That begins to wane. The adversary begins to attack. The pressures of life begin to ebb up. And then before you know it, we, we find ourselves, we're kind of, we've kind of become lukewarm Christians. We've lost our passion. Or we're just doing what we do, you know, out of a sense of duty. Right? Our heart's not really in it anymore. Well, see, that, that happens to all of us. But at the moment when we realize that that's happening, God's word is calling us, if you're hearing his voice today, do not harden your hearts against his voice as in the wilderness in the day of rebellion, right? Okay, so that's kind of where we are up until chapter 4. So let me pick it up at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. That's pretty scary. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were, were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David today, after such a long time as it has been, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There therefore remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So that can be a little confusing. So what I'd like you to do is the notes from the last session, uh, if you pick them up and turn to page 2, 
And I just want to, you know, just go through the notes that I gave you for that last session, working through uh, those verses in verses 1 to 8. So under D, the rest of God. So we spoke last week of the rest that God has promised. That rest does not come fully or all at once, but in phases. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, the rest is introduced. The truth that this rest comes to its full consummation in stages. Verse 4 speaks of the creation rest stage. God completed his work and forever sealed the, real the reality of, among other things, this rest for the people of God. This can be considered the first stage of the rest. To the Jew, that full consummation did not consist in entering the promised land and living under the dictates of the theocratic kingdom. This is borne out by verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day of rest through the mouth of David. This rest is to be fully initiated, and thus, as we concluded last week, we must keep uh, going, we must keep growing. So the author is saying there is that there is a rest for the people of there is a rest for the people of God. God created all things in six in uh, um, in six days, and on the seventh day, he yeah the seventh the seventh day he rested, right? And that's it. He's done. And part of that creation rest involves the fact that he has purposed a rest for his people, but that rest comes in stages. It did not come under the Mosaic law. It comes into it comes into full fruition in Christ Jesus. So what do you think it, it means there in verse uh, in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 4? For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God does his. Now it's talking about past tense there. What is that? that in reference to that's actually a verse that's speaking to a believer but what is it saying okay well I think it, it includes that but I think it's also broader than that yeah That's right. That's right. That's right. Our faith is sealed. Our destiny is sealed. There's nothing that we can or have to do to, uh, there's nothing we can do to change that destiny. There's nothing we, we, we can, uh, we need to do. It's there. It's done. We can rest in that. And because we can rest not living in fear of dying, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, when you, you know, maybe some of you old guys like me have been there, but what you, when you come close to, to death, it's a real comfort knowing that. It really is a real comfort knowing that, okay, 
you know, I'm going to pass through. There's no fear, you know, there's no sense of hopelessness. There's actually a little bit of anticipation there. So you can live your life knowing that you're free from that, right? That live or die, you're safe, you're good, right? And, and the reality is, and I've said this many times, for the believer, this life is as bad as it gets. It's as bad as it gets. For the unbeliever, this life is as good as it gets. So with that kind of understanding, now we're free to serve God. We're free to serve God and we're free to, you know, to pursue him. Okay. So verse 11 says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open to him to whom we must give account. And so um, I, I just want to just go over that because I'm not sure I, I did, uh, did it justice last time we met just to go through what some of those words say, that the word of God is living. That means it has life. You know, I was trying to explain this to my students today, that the words in this book are not the same as the words in that book. These were, this word has life. It, it actually, it's, it's a thing. It has life. It is a being, right? So, for all of our modern technology, I'm over on page three, right? Let me see. Yeah, I'm over on page three. For all of our modern technology, we still can't truly define it or identify it or know what its origin is. Though I now speak as a man, it just is. It has being, it has essence, it has nature, and it has life. It's living. It, it, it may not look like it's living, but it's living, okay? It says it's powerful. The, the Greek word is energos. The English word is energy. This is where we get the English word energy from. We do know that energy can be harnessed for good and it can be harnessed for bad. This is also true concerning God's word, right? And we see a prime example of this on when our Lord was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights and he was being tempted by Satan. And Satan was using the scriptures to, to tempt him. And, and what he was saying was true, but what he was doing was he was taking what he, the truth statements that he was making, he was taking them out of context. He was divorcing them from the context in which, he was in which they were given. So it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. Let's talk about that for a moment. I want to stop there for a moment because it brings something to mind. So one of the things that we were talking about, we've been talking about how <clears throat> we're talking about the canon of Scripture, how the canon of Scripture was formed. And one of the questions that we had to discuss is, what does today's society think about the Scriptures? <clears throat> what do they think about what the Scriptures teach and about 
you know, morality today and that basically morality today is relativistic. It's constantly shifting, right? So I, I asked the question. I said, let me ask you kids a question. I said, who in this classroom, and I've got 13 kids in this class, I said, who, who here believes that the gay lifestyle is, is acceptable to God? Well, of course, no one raised their hand because, I mean, these kids have all been under religious teaching for some amount of time. I said, it would probably shock you to know that in your age demographic now, somewhere around the vicinity of 80 to 90 percent. I said, and what's even more shocking among your age demographic in the church, it's somewhere around 65 or 70 percent. Right. And so. Uh, but but. That begs the question, how do we deal with, you know, how do we deal with the world out there? How do we deal with those who, quite frankly, they're, they're in the homosexual lifestyle? You know, when you, you know, if you take God's word and say that, um, that, you know, homosexuality is an abomination unto the Lord, is that true? Well, it is, in fact, true. But you can use the truth in a wrong way. You know, when you're approaching someone who's on the outside, right, who's struggling with those things, you know, they, you, they're not going to listen to you. And, you're, and as you'll see tonight, you know, as, as we get into, you know, the priesthood tonight, that the office of a priest, there was a twofold function of the, of the office of priesthood. One, he was to represent man to God, but he's, he was also meant to represent God to man. You see? And so when, when, the, when the priest, when the high priest approached God, he was representing mankind. But when the high priest represented mankind, uh, approached mankind, he was representing God. And as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. That means you have a twofold function. You are to represent man to God. Okay? So, who are the ones who need representing on our behalf to God? Well, well, if we're, well, it, assuming that we're believers... Right. If I am a if I am a, a royal priest and you are a royal priest. Right. Then it's not so much me. That I need you to represent to God. But it's someone who's not a priest. Unbelievers. So when you think about it that way, it totally changes. Our, it should totally change our attitude in the way we approach those who are outside the faith. We are, to, we are to approach them representing God to them. Now, if you approach them on this specific issue, representing God to them, homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord. Well, how, but how does that, how do, how do you represent God to them at that point? Basically as an ogre. Is that the way Jesus approached sinners? I mean, look at, look at, you know, I don't think we really understand when, when we, um, 
when we read in the gospel account that uh, you know the, the Pharisees were were taken up that he was actually having dinner with tax collectors and sinners and the sinners there were prostitutes they were you know the the absolute outcast of society and Jesus and you look at the way you read in the way the delicate way that he dealt with them he didn't he didn't gloss over their sin but he dealt with them very delicately and see that's that's the high priest representing God to man and that's that's what we're called to do right and then we are to represent man to God right so we have a so and we stand in a very real way in that gap between those who are without hope unbelievers and eternity and our job is to represent Christ to them but it's also our job to represent them to Christ right okay okay getting back to the text we do know that energy can be harnessed for good and it can be harnessed for bad the same thing is true with the royal priesthood that you have been graced with you can use it for good or you can use it for bad this is uh, it justifies us it teaches us it encourages us and it also corrects us the us here being not a all of humanity but the sheep of his fold to the dead world it judges destroys and condemns it says it's sharper than any two-edged sword and here it's speaking to the twofold nature of man and there's an example there uh, you know it's kind of like the difference between sex and love sex is the natural desire for physical intimacy love is a desire and expression of spiritual int intimacy they both can be perverted God's word at any given time tells us if it is or is not being perverted. It pierces to the, to the joints and marrow, which speaks to the physical life force that give, gives motion to meat. Joints is that which makes movement possible. Marrow is that which gives life required substance to that which moves. The point here being, what is it that drives us? What is the life force that causes us to rise up out of bed each and every day and do the things that we do? Again, as above, they can both be perverted. God's word at any given time tells us if it is or is not being perverted. And it's a discerner, which is a judge and a critic. And it sits in judgment and uh, as a critic over our thoughts, which are our, our deliberation and ideas and our intents and emotives. And we thank God for this because there is another reality that we all must bear in mind. Hebrews 4.13 And there is no creature hidden before his sight, but all things are naked and open to him to whom we must give account. There is nothing hidden from God. All things, thoughts, intents, actions are in his full view at every moment, and to him we must give account. Okay, so that kind of brings us up to where we ended. So now... I have notes, and I we just well we, we I think we have enough time to get started on this, and I this section of notes only covers verses 14 to 16 because, as I said, maybe someone can pass these out.
as I said, this forms a transition and we now move into the discussion of the priesthood. Alright, so um, I've covered a lot of what's on the first page of these new notes, so we're going to drop down to point E on page 1 and pick it up from there. So the reality is that we often fail and fail miserably. It's at those times that the temptation to just give up and walk away is the greatest. There are many reasons that drive the entrance into this thinking. And now it's in reference to, you know, trying to, trying to live the life that God has enabled us and empowered us to live, but failing and falling so often. This is kind of what this is in reference to. Okay, so there are many reasons that drive the entrance into this thinking. Shame at failing time and time again with sin, and more often than not, a particular sin. <coughs> so, so... Um, Someone once asked me, <coughs> um, what, what is a prerequisite for engaging in spiritual warfare, right? There are times, hopefully not many in your life, where you're going to be called, God may call you to, to assist someone who's being harangued and harassed by demonic spirits. Someone asked me, what is a prerequisite? The prerequisite is that your life has to be clean. And what I mean by clean is there's, there can be no life-controlling sin that is dominant in your life. Because if there, if there is, that entity will pick up on it and will use it to, to tear you apart, right? And so when that statement says that there's shame failing time and time again, most often than not, it's with a particular sin that is, that has, that is, is holding us in bondage, okay? Discouragements that even though you are doing your best to serve the Lord, not much seems to change, and indeed it seems that life is only getting harder. You get tired of the spiritual, physical assaults of Satan as he works through his emissaries. Whose emissaries? Those who are truly his slaves, and those who, according to 2 Timothy 2.26, have been taken captive by him to do his will. You find both these groups represented in the church. The thought pattern develops that says, nobody cares, nobody listens. Why should I continue to put myself and my loved ones through this tribulation? Let them go and be filled with the fruit of their choices. And, uh, and those are the words of a frustrated pastor right there, right? Many of, many of a pastor has thought these things. So where do you go over on the next page when you've tried countless times and failed? or you're just discouraged with the whole charade that the, that the church can and most often is. What do you do when your life force is depleted and indeed has gone from you? Where do you find the strength to go on when you have no strength left? Well, you find it in our high priest. So in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, we read, Seeing then... 
that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who, can, who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So uh, the idea is that we have something, we have access to a source that the world does not. So we need to keep and live with this abiding reality in our minds. So how do you handle these things? And let me tell you something. This is not, this is not an easy thing to do. It, it takes practice to get to this place, right? What do you do when, when you know, you're serving God, you're doing your best to serve God, and things just not are just not going the way that you had envisioned they would go when you wanted to give faithful servant to God. Well, how do you keep going in the midst of that? Well, it's important to keep first and foremost in our mind that we have access to someone that the world does not. That he's there. We're not alone. So we need to keep and live with this abiding reality in our minds that we have a great high priest, one who represents us before the throne. So first in the notes, a great high priest, much greater than Aaron or any of the priests of his order. And we're, we're, we're going to see, you know, as we move into the text where he gets into the discussion of their, the Melchizedekian priesthood that there was a priesthood that was before and supersedes and, and is far above the priesthood of Aaron, and that's the priesthood of Melchizedek. And I think I'll, I'll be able to show you where the genealogy in the Gospel of Mark traces the, the, the Davidic right of the throne to Jesus the Messiah and the genealogy in the Gospel of Luke actually traces the succession of the priesthood of Melchizedek to Jesus. Because you'll notice that the genealogy in the book of Luke starts, goes all the way back to Adam. Right? So we'll get there eventually. So we have this high priest, so he's there. Uh, so a great high priest, much greater than Aaron, or any of the priests of his order. The high priests under the law were accounted great and venerable persons, but they were but faint types and shadows of Christ. Second, the greatness of Christ is set forth by his name, Jesus, a physician, a savior, and one of divine nature, the Son of God by eternal generation, therefore having divine perfection. It says that he has passed through the heavens. That is a completed work with abiding results. Jesus, the Son of God, truly human and truly divine. So let us hold fast to grasp and to clutch tightly to him, to hold fast to our confession, what we believe and what we acknowledge to be true. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted and that really should be the word tested. So whatever ways, whatever ways humanity can possibly be tested in this life, Jesus endured them. 
And because he endured them, he's able to understand what we go through. To sympathize, to share, to be a participant. That word weakness, sympathize with our weakness, lacking strength, coming to the end of the proverbial rope, the limitations and vulnerabilities of the human condition, most especially the psychological limitations. There is only so much a person can take. Right, exactly right. So should we be condemning sinners? It's not our job to condemn sinners. It's our job to, A, represent God to them and represent them to God. So instead of condemning, about praying for them, about saying, hey, let's go out to lunch. Let's, you know. So, uh, you know, I've gained a new perspective on some pretty important things, you know, in my life. Anyway, okay. Let's go over to page three, and I think we'll finish this up and be done. So what do you do when you come to the end of yourself? When you just don't have any more life force to draw down upon, it's all gone. There's not even enough to keep your body alive for another week. Realize that it is God who must and will bring every one of his children to this place. You're all going to get there, folks. If you haven't been there yet, rest assured, you will be there. And I can tell you definitively, it sucks. But you know what? That's when you really see God show up. Right then and there. In the midst of, this sucks. All right? Um, modern day life offers up all kinds of things, distractions, and temptations. All, intend us to, all intended to keep us in what I call the well of forgetfulness from having to face life and what our thoughts words and deeds have birthed into our life the tragedy of living as a member of a fallen race there's this quote from the show the cleaner which says to God you give us all these feelings but you don't tell us how to deal with them well yes he does in his word and thus we find different ways of dealing with them all of them become addictions not so much in the activity, behavior, or substance, but in the short time that those things immerse us into the well of forgetfulness. That's where the addiction lies. The bondage breaker is a quote, you know, that um, I use the bondage breaker material heavily when I engage in, you know, a specific type of counseling. But it says that God won't step in to help the addict or those in any kind of bondage until they come to the end of themselves, until they've got nothing left. God must and will bring every one of his children to this place. It is in this place that grace begins to work and enters in and finally leads to the place where we all need to arrive and abide. And that place is a place where we realize that we won't be able to live one more day by our innate life force because it's all gone there's nothing left that I can only go on from this moment on by tapping into God's life force 
This is what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus gives us the clue that this is indeed what must come into our lives. Matthew 4, 4 says, But he answered and said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, in Hebrews 4, 16, we conclude with, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly and come every day. It must be accessed every single day. Grace is typified in the Old Testament by the provision of manna. God delivers only one day supply at a time. Okay, there it is. Any questions or comments? Look at that, we finished right on time. All right, and next week we'll pick it up uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and we really dive down into the priesthood in Hebrews chapter 5. <laughs>